Hello, this is Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and today we are going to explore New Hampshire as a part of our School Choice Policy Series. New Hampshire has two educational choice programs. One was enacted in 2012, that's their tax credit scholarship program. The other, technically enacted in 2017, is a town tuitioning program, although as we will discuss later in this episode, de facto, the program has been operating for more than a century. So we'll hear a little bit more about that. I'll be joined in just a moment by Kate Baker. Kate is the director of the Children's Scholarship Fund of New Hampshire. So we're joined now with Kate Baker. Kate, thanks for coming on. I'm so happy to be here with you. So as I mentioned, you run the scholarship organization, Children's Scholarship Fund in New Hampshire. It operates as a part of the state's tax credit scholarship program. Could you tell us a little bit about how it works? Sure. The legislature passed the tax credit here in New Hampshire in 2012. And on January 1, 2013, uh, we started the scholarship organization. In New Hampshire, business or individual can get a tax credit of 85% against their business enterprise, business profits tax, or for an individual interest in dividends for donations to scholarships for low and middle income families in New Hampshire. And how many families are you aiding right now? At Children's Scholarship Fund this year, we have 281 children at 49 schools. We also have 55 homeschoolers. In total, since the inception of the program, we've been able to help 615 kids in New Hampshire. So I will tell you, I think I have the best job in New Hampshire, for sure. No doubt. And how much are the scholarships worth? Our scholarships are capped as an average and so we can help an individual family based on their need and income. The scholarship average for all of us in the whole state is around $2,700. That includes our special needs scholarship, which they legislated, that amount. And this year, that amount was $4,833. So if you're a child who has special needs, you do get a higher scholarship from us which the families who have those children, you know, I mean, think about it. These are your families who are low income and have special needs kids. I mean, they need as much help from us as they can get. And so we really do enjoy those scholarships. And New Hampshire's tax credit scholarship is unique. It's different from the other 17 tax credit scholarship programs around the country in terms of how the scholarships can be used. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, our homeschoolers, sure. So you can use our scholarship for a range of things, not just, I mean, many families do use it for private school tuition, but we also have children participating in online ed. A good example of that is one of our homeschool scholarships. It technically is a homeschooler, even though it's a fully enrolled in a school child, participates in the Stanford online school, Stanford online high school. So that's really exciting. People also can purchase their curriculum for homeschooling or services if their special needs child, for example, with their special needs child, if they needed OT or speech therapy, they could use our scholarship to do that. And so we've seen some amazing uses of this really customizing education to meet the child's needs. And so it's really exciting that we're able to do that, really open doors for families here in New Hampshire so that they can really customize their education for their child. Absolutely. Now, as a part of our new school choice policy series, 
we are giving our listeners not just an overview of how the programs work, but we're also getting in a little bit with the history of how the program was enacted, the sort of challenges that they faced, uh, legal battles, that sort of thing. So could you give us maybe an overview? Yeah, we had some real adventures here in New Hampshire, some really deep discussions about the policy and the constitutionality of it, discussions in the legislature. There were you know, repeal bills for the first five years. And then finally, people stopped trying to repeal it and realized, oh, wait, this is actually helping children. We should just leave it alone. You know, there was also a court, two levels, the Superior Court and the New Hampshire Supreme Court. At the Superior Court level, the judge actually ruled that we could continue operating, but that we couldn't give scholarships to children to attend a religious school. And I thought that was pretty shocking right? Uh, because it looked an awful lot like discrimination to me. And, you know, I remember feeling like I've never discriminated against someone in my life and I don't want to start now. So we did appeal that, you know, with the help of the Institute for Justice to the New Hampshire Supreme Court. And in the New Hampshire Supreme Court, they did do the same thing, I think, that the U.S. Supreme Court has done, which is rule on standing, because in this tax credit program, you know, just because you take a deduction or a credit on your taxes doesn't make it someone else's money. And it definitely doesn't make it the state's money. It is, in fact, you know, the donor's money that they are donating to the scholarship organization. And so it is private funds. And it, and the court ruled that same way that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the plaintiffs didn't have standing to bring the case, again, on the basis, in my opinion, because it's private money. That's right. So the law had been challenged under New Hampshire's Blaine Amendments, uh, which, as we know, the Blaine Amendments are these uh, historically anti-Catholic amendments that, uh, you know, the Know Nothing movement succeeded in sticking into these state constitutions, primarily to prevent Catholics from having access to uh, funding for their schools, even though at the time, the so-called common schools, which are sort of the forerunners of what we call public schools today, were teaching the Bible, they were leading prayer in a way that was essentially non-denominational Protestant. And so when the Catholics tried to access funding for their own schools, the Protestant establishment added these Blaine Amendments to prevent them. And the Blaine Amendment essentially says that public funding will not be used for sectarian schools. But you're right, even though the lower court judge said, well, the program itself is constitutional, but the funds can't go to a religious school, the state Supreme Court said, well, actually, you know, you've got private donors that are citizens that are making or or businesses that are making donations to private scholarship organizations. Then the funds are flowing to families to use at private schools. At no point are these funds entering the treasury. So the other side could not prove any harm from the program. So they said, you don't, you don't actually have standing to sue. Right. But let's back up even a little bit more, even before the lawsuit. So who were the people that were pushing for this law? How was this law enacted? What was the sort of opposition that you were facing in in the legislature? Well, you know, in New Hampshire, when you bring a new idea to the legislature, you might as well just shake the legislature, tip it upside down and flip it back over. You know, in New Hampshire, we are really traditional. We like things the way they are. We're not fans of new ideas. And so whenever you have a new idea in New Hampshire, it is a challenge. You know, in addition, we have a legislature with 424 members. And so, you know, the third, third largest legislative body 
what, on the earth, in the Engli- I think. In the English-speaking world. Yes, exactly. Yes. Full, full disclosure for our listeners, I was a, a member of the New Hampshire State Legislature. As Kate noted, it, given its size, I mean, like one in 10 people in the state are, are at any given time are, are legislators. So it's it's not as impressive as it sounds in other states. We love that it's a citizen legislature. That's right. That, that the legislators are your neighbors and they're regular people from New Hampshire. And they only make $100 a year. Right. When you bring a new idea to them, it does take a good bit of time to be able to share the the information. Absolutely. And so the legislators, Representative Greg Hill and Senator Jim Forsyth, did work very hard on making sure everyone understood what this was and how it would work. It did pass the House and the Senate. And then the governor at the time, Governor Lynch, did veto the bill. That's right. And then it went back and the legislature actually overrode the governor's veto. Right. Now, when it initially passed, it passed with a simple majority. But in order to override the governor's veto, it required a supermajority. So what changed in the interim? To oh, you're taking me way back. Yeah, to flip a whole bunch of the votes. I think it was collaboration and some compromises in in the bill that made it so that uh, more people could support it. In addition, there was a lot of families interested in the program and people in the community calling their legislator, talking to them about how families need more education opportunities in New Hampshire. It it felt like, um, I don't want to say it was like surfing a wave, but it, it did feel like it was a groundswell of support for the idea, in addition to the legislators really working on making sure that they compromised so that it could be agreeable to to more people. So it was a combination of legislators internally collaborating with each other and reaching compromises that everybody could live with, but also outside pressure from activists, you know, the grassroots, from families who wanted to be able to to benefit from school choice. And the combination of the outside pressure and these internal negotiations produced something that was able to achieve a supermajority in both legislative chambers and then override the governor's veto. Well, and what I've found, too, from running this program is it is a very New Hampshire school choice program, right? And so that might have been part of it also, is that the people of New Hampshire were working together to create this. You know, for example, having a program that's entirely voluntary, right? Like a business chooses to contribute and take the tax credit to help children. The children choose to participate. Like that's a very New Hampshire way of thinking, right? Like if people like it, it will grow. If people didn't like it, it wouldn't have done anything, right? And that's kind of our mindset here a little bit, you know. That's right. Live free or die. You know, that's right. How the people think here. And so for me, it, it does, it is a good fit for New Hampshire, this education tax credit program. This year in tax credit donations by August, the end of August, September 1 or so, you know, we did uh, reach a million dollars in the tax credit program, which is great, you know, for such a small state you know, growing each year by 25 or 50 percent. It's been a really, really fun and incredible uh, job to do here. Right. Now, you mentioned you, you, you passed the law. You're able to override the governor's veto. It survives multiple repeal attempts. 
and then it survives a lawsuit. Yes. That goes all the way up to the state Supreme Court. Right. Right. And, you know, I had no idea, too, when I started the scholarship organization that it would even be controversial. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, okay, great. You know, I'm from Manchester. I grew up a free reduced lunch kid, you know, in a kind of a poor neighborhood. And I felt like I wanted to do this work to help the children, help my people. Right. And so for me, you know, I came into it with this purity of heart, which was just fabulous at the time. Right. Because I really just wanted to help kids and then come to find out, oh, wait, this is controversial. Like somebody thinks this isn't a good idea. So it was really interesting experience at the time to have those discussions. The discussion, for example, about, you know, public money, public. And I'm and I'm still to this day being like these are private contributions. And so, you know, it's been very interesting. You know, it's a it's a discussion really about you know, in New Hampshire about buildings, like, are we talking about buildings and education infrastructure? Are we talking about kids, right? And so it's been a really, really interesting adventure. So, Kate, let's talk a little bit more about what are the arguments the other side was making? Who was making these arguments against the program? And how close did they actually come to repealing it? Well, you know, it was interesting because New Hampshire, you know, we're really a, a swing state. Okay. And so we can have Republican majorities in the House and the Senate, or in the governor's seat, and then two years later, have it be a Democrat majority. So um, one of the repeal attempts actually went through and passed in a controlled house that was controlled at that time by Democrats. But in the Senate was a Republican majority, and, and they traditionally do support these programs in New Hampshire. And it was, in fact, one senator who decided that now that it was existing law, she could support it, whose vote made it so that they weren't able to repeal the law. Right. So that was Senator Nancy Stiles. So in 2012, when they enacted the law, she had voted against it. But then the uh, opponents of school choice actually had a majority. It's true. There were Republicans and Democrats on both sides of the issue, right? I mean, there were in both the House and the Senate, or at least in the House, there were Republicans and Democrats on both sides of the issue. Senator Stiles had voted against it. And then a year later, after they successfully passed a repeal in the House, it appeared that they had the votes to do so in the Senate and that the governor would then sign the repeal. And this would have been the first school choice program ever legislatively repealed. But that didn't happen because one senator switched her vote. How did that happen? It was a discussion, I think, with her because her background actually was helping low-income children. And I think that when she realized that this program was targeted to low and middle income families, particularly free and reduced lunch kids, to be able to make it so that they could have more opportunities, I think that was really what made her change her mind. And so, you know, in terms of activist groups and things like that, not not necessarily just parties, who were the people that were opposing the program and what were they saying about it? Oh, man. So I know, for example, that... The people that sued the state to take the law to court. Right, that was a uh, Bill Bill Duncan. And... Yes, the American Civil Liberties Union, all the teachers unions in New Hampshire, of which we have a large, you know, group of teachers unions, just like every state, and an organization that was for the separation of church and state. And so that was the same people that oppose it in New Hampshire that oppose it everywhere. I think, you know, people that want to maintain the status quo in education and and don't want families to be able to 
you know, drive their children's education or customize. I mean, really, it's 2018. Like you can learn anywhere and it's probably time for us to start thinking like that, you know, <laughs> as a society. <laughs> the thing that frustrates me, I just have to share one thing with you. Sure. The thing that frustrates me when I go to Concord is people that send their children, middle or upper middle income people who send their children to private school, but then oppose programs like this. That, that may be the most frustrating piece of the legislative, you know, the political side of things. Right. It's most shocking, so to speak. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Yes. You send your kid to private school, but a low-income family shouldn't be able to do the same thing. Right. Choice for me, but not for thee. Yeah, it's shocking. Yeah, that's shocking. I still am shocked by that to this day, even after doing this work for whatever, seven years. <laughs> still shocking. So... New Hampshire also has a very new school choice program, but in another sense, it's also a very, very old school choice program. So could you tell us a little bit about the town tuitioning program and the situation in Croydon? Yeah, I'd love to. So again, something that I think was already okay to do, right? The town of Croydon, uh, their school board um, enacted a policy that because they only have a little, little teeny little um, K to four school that has about what, you know, 20 kids in it or something like that. They wanted to make it possible for the kids after they graduated from the fourth grade to be able to choose a neighboring town's public school or a, a private school. And so they put that into their local uh, policy that, that you could do that. And of course, that ruffled all kinds of feathers. And, and they also went to the courts to discuss that about the constitutionality of it. They did end up making it so that a child can choose a school that is non-religious, because it seemed to me like they didn't want to fight that battle. But it really is an interesting model where the town is saying to the families, you can choose from these schools instead of just assigning the children to one school, which, of course, that's always better, right, when a family has more choices rather than less. They do also express that it is a cost savings. So the area private schools, they are paying the town the amount that they otherwise would pay for a child to attend the public school and they do get to pay less when the tuition is lower. So there is a particular school in that area children are choosing that the town is saving money by the children attending that school rather than the area district. And so that's been a really interesting thing to see. I know they've been having people move to the town so that they can participate in the program. And so, you know, functions not only as a of course, creating education opportunities for the children, but also economic development, right? It's increased their property values and people want to move there. And there's a lot of discussion on other school boards, you know, about should they be doing that or can they do it? Again, I think it already could have been done. For example, there's 51 programs in New Hampshire for special needs children that districts already do out of district placements too. And so I did, and they're private, you know, there's a lot of private programs. And so for me, I was kind of looked at what they wanted to do in Croydon and thought, yes, they could totally do that. But they did again, they'll also have to go to the legislature and the courts to be able to clarify that, in fact, they can do what they probably should have already been able to do. Right. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So some of our listeners may be a little confused that there's a, uh, you've got this town and they, the, the public school is only grades one through four. Um, I mean, so, teeny, right. Right. so for some context, Scope. in the 2010 census, 
there were fewer than 800 people living in this town. So, yes. I mean, this is this is a tiny town, and there's a whole bunch of these small little towns in New Hampshire and, of course, in all sorts of other states. It's adorable. You should come visit. Everyone that's listening, we'd love to have you during leaf peeping season. It's gorgeous yeah. here. Now, of course, <laughs> so one of the interesting things is uh, Jody Underwood, I believe, she was she the chair of the school board? That's right. So she was the chair of the school board at the time. She later did a study for the Granite Institute in New Hampshire. That's one of the New Hampshire think tanks, and was able to document how this practice that was so controversial in 2016 had actually been going on for more than 100 years, where right. towns, yes. without getting permission from the state legislature or the state board of education or, or the state department of education, were just doing this on their own. They said, look, we, you know, we don't have enough citizens to, to maintain a, a whole school district. In many cases, they would send them to the neighboring town. That's uh, very well known. But in many cases, they would just, the town would use public funds that had been raised in the town, and they would send a child to a private school, some many cases a religious school. And this had been going on at least as far back as the late 1800s. But it, it still, it wasn't clear in law. So the State Department of Education was trying to crack down on Croydon. How was the situation eventually resolved? Well, that's a good question. This, it was resolved uh, two ways. One is that the legislature did pass a law saying that they could, in fact, do that. Um, and I know they also did go through the courts as well. And so I, I think it was both things that made it quite clear that Croydon um, could do what they, frankly, what they wanted to do, right? You know, New Hampshire, we're always talking about local control. Here and and so you know for example most of our education funding is local from the towns and so to me it made good sense that they could do that and have a town tuitioning and a school choice program in their town right and if I believe so the the lawsuit was first and uh, I believe it became moot when the legislature took action to uh, clarify yes, say yes, you know I absolutely right. this this we are going to allow this this is for sure allowed because right. it was not exactly clear. There was no express permission in law, but it was not expressly prohibited in law either, and the legislature right. took action to make sure that it was clear. So Expressly permitted, yes. Right. So what's next for educational choice in New Hampshire? Well, you know, we're already talking about education savings accounts in New Hampshire, and, and like I described to you earlier, you know, a new idea in New Hampshire, it takes a while here for us to to uh, learn about something. There are 424 legislators, but we did have an education savings account bill in our legislature last year um, that we almost passed. It was only five votes. And so I expect that conversation to continue in New Hampshire. As much as, you know, we're old fashioned, I think in terms of education, you know, our governor has really been talking about customizing and innovation. And we do have quite a bit of innovation happening here, you know, technical tech hubs and startups and, and things like that. And so I don't think it's out of the realm of possibilities that um, New Hampshire will embrace education savings accounts. Um, if you look at our homeschool scholarships, it's a good example of, of how it could work, right? Yes, our homeschool scholarships is a smaller scale, but nonetheless, you know, it's been able to show people what families do when they're empowered with these funds. Um, our state adequacy dollars, I don't want to say they're low, 
but it's a smaller percentage of the total education spending in New Hampshire. Most of our education spending is local. And so, you know, part of the discussion is, again, always about money and buildings, right, and infrastructure. But that dollar amount is high enough to help a family, but not high enough that, you know, you can really argue that it hurts anyone. And so, you know, the local districts in New Hampshire, if a child goes to a private school or decides to do online ed, they still do keep all of their local funding and those decisions are made by local school boards. And so I feel like we'll be able to have that discussion, really good, robust discussion in the legislature this coming year. Right. As you mentioned, you came very, very close. So you had a, a universal eligibility education savings account bill pass the New Hampshire State Senate. Yeah. It had the support of the governor who said it would uh, he would sign it if it got to his desk. And actually, he worked very hard to make sure that it did pass. The House Education Committee and then later the House Finance Committee watered the bill down quite a bit, limited eligibility only to low-income families, did a few other things to the bill in, you know, in terms of a, you know, putting a cap on the number of students that could participate, et cetera. Yeah, their discussion about the money thing was right. we want to know how many kids. But eventually, I mean, it came very close at one point, just five votes shy of going forward. So in a body of 400 on, on yes, the House side. right. So yeah, five that, out that's of the thing to remember about New Hampshire is the number of legislators. I mean, it it really is. Um, and, and frankly, they're real people. Right. Right. With no staff. And so it is necessary to have authentic discussions here in New Hampshire about. If I recall correctly, there were between, I think there were about 40 legislators that were absent that day which is pretty typical for New Hampshire. That's 10% uh, of the body. I mean, they wrote about that in the news right. because it was such a high number of yeah. people that were that happened to be missing. I mean, they are citizen volunteers. Right. And so, for example, if someone has to work, you know, they might have to work on a day that they also might have to vote. Right. But it would be good to have some better attendance for sure. The key is if you had a five-vote margin in other states, I mean, that's not something you can overcome in a much smaller legislature, and especially a professional legislature yeah. where you've got, you know, legislators are, are generally showing up. So it's rare on a key vote that you're going to have legislators who are absent, uh, barring extraordinary circumstances. But in New Hampshire, you've got a citizen legislature. You've got high degree of absences all the time. It was particularly high that day. I think it may have been north of 40, but a five vote margin in the New Hampshire House is actually very small. And if it had been, you know, maybe a day later and you had a different group of people that were there or absent, it may have passed. So you came right, incredibly right. close. Right. I mean, there was a lot, there's a lot of support for the idea here in New Hampshire. Right. And this was on the first try with an ESA bill. Yeah. A lot of great, authentic questions, logistic questions. How would it work? What type of mechanisms would you use to be able to enable the families to use the funds? I mean, great questions from the legislators about how the program would function and the idea that we would create more education opportunities for families. You know, we've been hearing from a lot of bullied kids who really do need an immediate solution and having education savings accounts in New Hampshire could do that. It could make it so that if you were in a unsafe situation, you could go and get an education savings account and then be in a safe situation, right? And so the legislators are thinking like that. They are seeing it um, for the possibilities that it, that it could have for families. 
Well, you came very close. I'm sure you're going to hit the ground running in the coming year, and we wish you the greatest success. Uh, Kate Baker of Children's Scholarship Fund, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for tuning in to EdChoice's new School Choice Policy podcast series. For those who are interested in staying up to date on the school choice happenings in New Hampshire and in other states, you can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. You can also follow us on social media at EdChoice on Twitter. You can also sign up for email on our website, edchoice.org. Thank you so much. See you later. 